What's up, everybody? My name is Mike Lee, and I would like to welcome you to the Mind Shift Lab. Each week, we'll bring you a new guest to share exercises, strategies, and concepts to help you create an internal shift that will drive external results in business, the arts, sports, and life. Today, we are joined by the one and only Michael Port. Michael has written nine books, including the referable speaker, Book Yourself Solid, and Steal the Show, the latter, which according to the former president of Starbucks, might be the most unique and practical book ever written on the topic of public speaking. His books have been on the bestseller lists of the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, USA Today, and Publishers Weekly, and have been selected by Amazon and 800 CEO Read as the best books of the year. He was once a professional actor, having received his MFA from NYU's graduate acting program, guest starring on shows like Sex in the City and Law and Order, and in films like The Pelican Brief and Down to Earth. These days, Michael can be seen on MSNBC, CNBC, and PBS as an on-air expert in communication and business development and as the host of the most popular podcast on public speaking and performance, Steal the Show with Michael Port. Thanks for being here today. It's my pleasure. So you initially kind of got into this space through acting. What drew you to, to acting and how is that created a foundation to what you're doing today? What drew me to acting was the requirement uh, that uh, I take a fine arts class in college. That was it. That, that was really it. But then I took this class and I discovered that you could just play around and get an A. And I thought, this is a great path for me. And my, my, uh, my teacher said, listen, I think you should go on. I think you've got some, some talent. I said, yeah, but what are you going to do with this? I mean, what am I going to be, a professional actor? And he said, yeah, maybe. So I ended up switching my major to theater, and then uh, I didn't feel ready to go out and start acting, so I applied to the NYU graduate acting program. And I got in, which was lovely. I spent three years there, and then I worked for four years as a professional actor. And I found the business side of being an actor really unfulfilling, which I don't think would be a surprise to most people. You know, when, when you start out, you're spending most of your time auditioning, not actually working. And I like to work. I really like to work. So I just don't think I was mature enough at the time to handle the rejection that comes with being a creative artist. It took me many, many years to stop focusing on approval and instead just focusing on results. And when I, when I started doing that, that's when I really started to make my way as an artist and as a creator. Uh, so I think, you know, I think those years as an actor really laid a foundation for my success later in life. Uh, rather than uh, being the years that were my most productive years. Awesome. So I know you frame up 
essentially, if I'm going to agree to a life in the creative world, I'm also agreeing to a life of personal growth. Why? And I don't remember what book you wrote that in somewhere, uh, something along those lines. And I, I found it 100% to be true, especially uh, you could even say that about being in entrepreneurship, right? Oh, yeah. So w- why is that true? Why, if you're going to be in the creative space, why are you agreeing to a life of personal growth? Well, if you are going to create a transformational experience for an audience, say, by delivering a keynote, or you're going to create a transformational experience for a reader of a book, it's unlikely you'll be able to do that unless you go through some sort of transformational experience yourself. Because if you are the exact same person, if you haven't changed, if you haven't uh, expanded your thinking, if you haven't opened your mind up to new ways of seeing the world, if you haven't had, wait for it, a mind shift, then it's unlikely you're going to produce work that can create that experience for others. And that's what I love about doing this work, and that's what I hate about doing this work, because it's really hard sometimes. I mean, the last book that I wrote, The Referable Speaker, uh, I wrote with my good friend and colleague, Andrew Davis, and we spent two years on that book. And when we started that project, we didn't know if we could do what we wanted to do. Meaning, we went into that project with a goal. We wanted to see if there was a formula for creating a sustainable career as a professional speaker. And so, you know, I know your audience, uh, they're not all professional speakers, but I use this as an example because we didn't go into that project knowing the answer. And we were going to publish our findings either way. If we couldn't find the answer, then we would publish those findings. And if, of course, uh, we could find an answer, then we would publish those findings. And fortunately, we did find the answer. And we we wanted to ask that question because no one had actually asked that question or provided an answer that we thought was suitable for the industry. So it took a really deep investigation uh, over a long period of time to provide an alternative approach uh, to what was already out there so that we could make a difference in our community. Otherwise, you know, you're just kind of sharing what you already know, which is likely what you've learned from somebody else and aren't actually creating something new or more relevant or more helpful than what they currently have access to. So, yeah. So you brought up in the beginning of uh, answering this question around the, the process of writing this book. And I think one of my, one of my biggest pet peeves is when people talk about high performance in the same sentence as, as talent. Right. And I, I'd be willing to bet that, you know, you put, a massive amount of work into this book that never hit the pages uh, that, that nobody else has seen. And so speak to that as far as like the, the process focusing, you know, focusing on that process of, of creation uh, and then maybe how we can tie it to, to something else 
uh, outside of the speaking business or even, sure. you know, outside of the creative life, whether you're in leadership, entrepreneurship, because you can speak to all those. Oh, yeah. Well, entre- I mean, t- talent is very overrated uh, and you don't get more talent as you get older. You, you just have whatever talent you have. Uh, you get better at something because you develop craft. And, uh, and that's true for almost any discipline. You know, it reminds me of when I first went to graduate school. When I went to graduate school, they, they, they select 15 to 18 students per year out of uh, a, a crop of about 2,500 to 3,000 people auditioning. So if you get an invitation to go to either NYU grad or Yale drama for your MFA, which is where my wife Amy went, you know, you feel like hot stuff. You feel pretty good about yourself. So you get there and, uh, you know, you got to kick in your step and you're thinking, man, I got talent and I'm ready to roll. And the first year they allow you to, to feel that way. And, and, uh, and they allow you to do things that you can do pretty easily. But once they get you into the second year, they start asking you to do things that you've never done before, that are harder than you've ever done before, that are different than you've ever done before, that are outside of your sphere of talent. And all of a sudden you realize, oh boy, I can't do that. My tricks don't work here. And most people in their second year get really depressed, smoke a lot of cigarettes, and end up in therapy. Because they question whether or not they actually have any talent whatsoever because they spent most of their early years thinking that they were good because they were talented. And people say it, oh, you're so talented. You know, you see this all the time on on shows like The Voice or American Idol. They go, oh, my God, they have so much talent. They keep talking about the talent. But if you, you know, if you really sat down and and talked to the judges, you know, they would say, well, yeah, they have talent, but man, they're nailing it because of their craft. And, and so second year, you go through this really difficult period, but over that time, you're learning the craft. You're mastering the craft. And by your third year, you're able to do things that you didn't even know were possible because now you have mastered the craft or to a certain degree. You know, it takes many, you know, it takes many, many years, I think, to master it, but you've become proficient in the craft by that point. And it also reminds me of something that Ira Glass once said. Ira Glass is a host of a, of a wonderful show on NPR, This American Life. And he said that very often when people go into a creative field, they have taste. You know, they have good, good taste. And they start to try to make something that is as good as their taste. But because they've never done it before and they don't yet have craft, they have a really difficult time making something as good as their taste. And as a result, most people quit. But the few people that keep working on it, they keep doggedly working on it, will eventually create something that is as good as their taste. But then, guess what happens? Their taste gets better. So the next project they feel like they're never going to be able to create something as good as their taste. But they eventually do because they keep at it. And that's why many creative artists, when they look back at things that they wrote or performed uh, 
5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they go, oh, my God, I wrote that? I did that? Sometimes I'll look back at my books from the early 2000s, and I say, what was I thinking? You know, because uh, I feel like I've become more sophisticated as a writer over the last almost 20 years. Uh, you know, maybe some of my uh, readers may not agree, but at least I feel like I have. So that's why I think that if we, if we go into any of these performance situations, especially public speaking, and we think that just because we've got a gift for the gab or we're charming or we're clever, uh, that we're quick on our feet, that that is going to win the day, that we're going to rise to the occasion, very often we won't. I mean, you might do okay, and people might pat you on the back and say, oh, that was a good job because the bar is actually pretty low in the world of uh, at least professional speaking. Um, but you know that you could have done better. You know, you have that, that feeling in the, you know, in the pit of your stomach. You go, I know it could have been could have done better. And you know the military says you're never going to rise to the occasion. You always fall back on your training. And the same thing is true for any discipline that requires some sort of craft. So you brought up something in the, in the beginning about the first year of grad school. Uh, they, the program was easier. Was that strategically designed to help you build a baseline level of confidence or like what, what was, what, what was the strategy behind that from a, a development standpoint? Yeah. So in my program, the first year was focused on playing. You know, one of the uh, things that a performer needs to get really good at is playing. And when you lose the ability to play, your ability to perform often declines. And you see this in athletes, too. You know, when ath I mean, it's a little bit cliche. You know, you'll see it in a lot of movies about athletes. Uh, you know, when they, the athlete who's having trouble or, you know, he's got the yips or... Um, you know, he's just in a slump. You know, his coach will take him back to the high school field and have him play with the high school kids. Or even farther back, he'll have him play with the, you know, the 10-year-olds uh, just, you know, out on the field, you know, uh, in the neighborhood. And all of a sudden, they remember how much they loved the game and how much fun it was to play the game. And that's what we spent our time on first year. So we learned how to play. And, and in in in, 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 in sort of practical or technical terms, that was improv. We learned how to be mm -hmm. great improv performers. So we learned all the fundamentals of saying yes and listening. Because performing acting is about listening even more than it is about doing. And as a result, uh, we got really... We, we've built a lot of facility uh, in, the, in, the, in the craft of performance, but then when we were asked to do things uh, that were more classical, that required a different type of craft, that's when we hit the wall, and we had to learn uh, that craft as well. What were some of the things that, that you hit the wall with that you had to overcome? Oh, my gosh. The list is long. Well, one of the things that, uh, that I had trouble with was listening. I mean, I could hear what people were saying. It wasn't like I, I was hard of hearing. It was that I was often anticipating what I was going to do before I did it. I'm, I'm very futuristic and forward-thinking, so I always, uh, I'm thinking a few steps ahead. But as a, as a performer, 
you need to be able to be in the moment and respond to what is happening in that moment. And if you anticipate, then you often miss what's happening in that moment. And that was something that uh, I needed to work on a lot and I still need to work on. It's something my wife is brilliant at. You know, I can, you know, I, I sometimes will see uh, videos of us when we're both on stage together, and I'm mesmerized just watching her listen to me talking. And it's not because I'm so interesting, it's because she's so interesting when she's listening. So I got a question I want to ask you that I'm trying to, formulate how to how to frame it up but you how do you you talked about being at the present moment you talked about the ability to to listen and then to be able to respond to what is actually happening not what you think is going to happen right how do you develop that that trust to be able to to be in that moment to be there and to fully trust yourself to show up that that the answer is going to come through you the response is going to to come through you. So it's different in different fields, I would imagine. I'll give an example uh, in acting because I spent time there, but I'll also give an example in entrepreneurship. So in acting, and the same thing is true for public speaking, keynoting, if, if you are so well prepared that you can forget about everything you prepared, when you walk on stage and allow your preparation to support playing the moment as it exists, then you'll create a much more authentic and honest performance. Because the best performers in the world are the most honest performers, the most authentic performers. In entrepreneurship, when you've spent many years as an entrepreneur, you have been faced with a lot of problems. I mean, very often the entrepreneur's job is to get up every day and solve problems. For example, on September 1st, our 10,000 square foot headquarters was totally destroyed by Hurricane Ida. And when I say totally destroyed, I'm not being hyperbolic. The walls were down, the floors were ripped up, Every piece of furniture, every uh, item of property that we had, all the electronics destroyed. So, you know, uh, overall for us, you know, that's about a seven-figure loss. Now, some people say, oh, yeah, well, you've got insurance. Well, commercial insurance doesn't cover floods. So that's a problem. But it wasn't my first day uh, on the job as an entrepreneur. So I just looked at it as another problem that needs to be solved. It's not a problem I wanted to solve, frankly. I might have been a little pissed off that it happened, but, you know, it's not like it happened to me. Then that's the difference. You know, it, first of all, happened to lots of people because it's a hurricane, but it didn't happen to me. It just happened in that space, and that's the space I inhabited. So all I can do is trust the, the fact that I've got a great team, and that I know my, uh, my students really, really well. I know it's relevant for them and important for them. And I can trust that in that moment, I will find the way forward. Now, that's not hokey for me, uh, because when you have experience 
solving problem after problem after problem after problem, uh, then you get more comfortable solving problems. And so as uncomfortable as that situation was, I really did feel that whatever the next chapter brings will be fine. And I will figure out what that next chapter looks like just one day at a time. If I stay in the moment uh, and don't get too anxious, you know, because anxiety is generally um, a result of us worrying about the future that we don't understand or, or, or don't know. I mean, the future is always uncertain. You can never predict the result. So I can't go too far out ahead, and I can't wallow in the past of, oh, we did it this way, so now we have to do it this way again. I just had to stay in that moment and try to figure out what is the next right thing to do. And that's just another way of staying in the moment uh, and allowing the experience you have to guide you along the way. Awesome. I love that answer. I, I think as you're right, as entrepreneurs, we are constantly solving problems. And if we just, we don't look at that, that problem as something that defines us, it's just one more obstacle, one more challenge we have to go through. And then trusting on the other side that we're going to have growth, we're going to learn something, and we're going to be able to use that eventually in our, our business, in our whatever it is that we have. I think leaning into that with that growth mindset, with that trust is, is really powerful. Because so many times we look back on it and we say to ourselves, oh, I'm so grateful that I went through this because of what I've been able to do and become and achieve because of that challenge, right? Yeah. <laughs> the, the irony is we all want to be better, but we need a challenge. We need something to rock us, to hit us, yeah. to, to go through that. Yeah, and you know, Mike, I, I think the other thing that really helps when you're hit with really big challenges is honesty and transparency. So I didn't pretend that I had all the answers. I didn't go to my team my, and my, all my clients and say, oh, I've, been, I've been doing scenario planning for 10 years. You know, if there was a hurricane, I know exactly what we would do. No, I, I had no idea what was next. And so I was completely honest with them about that. And, and I said, look, we'll figure it out together. I also relied on them, meaning I, so I get uh, uh, depression. I've gotten depression since I was in high school, and it's cyclical, so it comes, um, you know, maybe every 12 to 18 months or so, and it sucks. I mean, it really sucks uh, when it comes, and I didn't used to talk about it because I was a bit ashamed of it. You know, I wanted to be tough, and I wanted to, I, I didn't want people to think that I was weak or there's anything wrong with me. Um, but over the years, as I've gotten older, I've realized that that only creates shame uh, and, uh, and, and, and isolation, and, and you can't deal with those kind of things uh, in isolation. And so now I'm more willing to talk about it. I still don't like talking about it. Like, I don't have a good feeling right now saying that on the air to all your listeners. But I do say it because I know that many people uh, suffer from depression or anxiety or other issues. And you can be an incredibly sane person and have really challenging mental health issues. Being crazy and having mental health issues is not the same thing. So, uh, you know, for me, I just think that's important to recognize. But 
the thing that helps during those difficult times is being honest with people about where you are, how you're feeling. And if you take care of others, they'll take care of you during that time. So I happened to be going through a period of depression when that flood hit. And so when you're in a, in a, in a period of depression, it's harder to deal with those kinds of things. It just feels heavier and bigger than it always does. So I told my team, I said, listen, I'm, I'm in the shit right now. Like, this is a tough place for me. And, um, and you know, I need all the resources that I can muster, you know, in myself. But more than that, I'm going to need to lean on you. I need your help right now. And because, I think, because the way that we take, my wife and I take care of them, uh, they are happy to, to give us their shoulders to lean on. In fact, I think they are more proud because they can do that. And as a result, we're a better team. And so just hiding, you know, how you feel, what's really going on, um, generally just creates uh, more isolation and more pain. And, uh, and if you don't let people help you, um, it's harder to get better, you know, faster. I appreciate you bringing that up because uh, th that's actually how I got into the work that I'm doing today. I've, I've dealt with depression my whole life as well since, oh, no I mean, like eight or nine years old was my first memory of it. Oh, wow. And so I, I can, I mean, I can relate to everything you're saying and it's, uh, it's, uh, you know, it's tough to go through it, but that's also when you have the storm that comes on top of the storm, it's, it can be debilitating, right? Yeah. Yeah. And but I wanted to, you brought up something that I think is super important to to, to uh, maybe dive a little bit deeper on. And that's, you know, vulnerability is a huge thing in the corporate leadership space right now. Right. Mm -hmm. And one thing that you brought up and you didn't exactly phrase it this way, but that I kind of gathered from uh, from your your response was that you were you were willing to invest in your people which allowed you to be more vulnerable with them and those investments built built this trust and i think a lot of you know a lot kind of like you brought up you didn't want your any of your your personal challenges with mental health to be seen as weak or or anything like that but i but you said you really brought up the fact that when you when you can invest in your people it allows you to be more open to receiving from them yeah um how 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 do you build that trust with the people that you're leading which allows you to be more vulnerable which in turn just makes everybody it makes the entire organization really levels up organizational resilience right at scale because you're building a culture where everybody feels like they can rely on each other yes First and foremost, I think trust is built on making commitments and fulfilling them. If you make a lot of commitments but don't fulfill them, generally people don't want to play with you again. You know, they don't trust that you're going to do what you say you're going to do. Uh, on the other hand, if you don't make many commitments, then people don't want to play with you because you know, they don't know that you're committed. And so our job you know, in general, to build trust is make commitments, fulfill them, make commitments and fulfill them, make commitments and fulfill them. And of course, every once in a while, you may make a commitment and then say, you know what, 
I think I have to uh, make an adjustment here. And if you are someone who generally fulfills the commitments you make, then people say, absolutely, no problem. I totally get it. So I think that's what builds your reputation from just a very practical perspective, and it builds trust. Now, I think the next level of trust in a relationship is safety. And one of the things that I have found, you know, and I'm not an expert on uh, vulnerability in corporate culture. I just have my own anecdotal experiences. One of the things that I have found has improved our culture, has increased the level of connection and trust that we have with each other, is the fact that everybody feels safe. And I think the team feels safer when I am transparent and share my vulnerabilities and my fears. Because, I, and, I'm, and I'm often surprised, you know, like for example, after I, I told one of the team members about my depression and, and, and that I needed some help and that it was really hard, she said to me, you know, my, I've always respected you as a leader, but it's at a whole nother level now. And I'm thinking, you know, here I am just like depressed. I'm like, ah, well, okay, I don't get it. But, but if I think about it, I do, because otherwise they see you as some sort of inhuman figure. And there's something untrustworthy about somebody who just seems perfect. Interesting connection. It seems they must be hiding something because if you've been around long enough, you know that everybody's got something. And if if you if you walk around as if you know uh, you know you you don't got any stink on you, and you know how to do everything, you got all the answers. Uh, I'm not so sure people fully are willing to trust you. So. Safety is something that we really focus on, uh, you know, with our team members, but it's also something that we focus on with our student body and in our teaching. Because, you know, our, our job at Heroic Public Speaking is to help our students become better performers so that they can change the way their audiences feel, think, and act. Because you can't, it's very difficult to change the way somebody behaves uh, you know, just with information. You know, like, if, I mean, everybody knows, like, uh, you shouldn't eat a Big Mac. It's probably not good for you. Some vegetables would be better. We have the information. But unless we change how we feel about those things, uh, we're probably not going to change what we do. So we always, you know, we're working with them on helping and teaching them how to have their audiences change, how they, to change the way the audiences feel, think, and then act. But if you want to change how somebody feels or thinks or acts, it's incredibly important that they feel safe with you. So we always focus on building safety first. So, for example, if you're giving a presentation uh, and you come out and say, all right, uh, raise your hand if you're an alcoholic. Now, let's say this is a corporate event and you got, you know, people who are just colleagues sitting next to each other. You're, you know, one person sitting next to their boss, another person sitting next to the president of the company, 
And there is nothing wrong with being uh, an alcoholic or in recovery or any of that. Let me be clear about that. But not everybody wants to share that in their workplace because they may not feel safe to do so. And if the speaker comes out and asks that question, well, the audience will not feel safe with that speaker. Now, if it's at an AA meeting, that's a little different because that's why everybody's there. So you understand context is king in this case. So all any so for say example from a speaking perspective, all audience interaction should be proportionate to the amount of trust that you've earned. Any interaction you have with another person should be proportionate to the amount of trust that you've earned, which is why, you know, going up to somebody on the street and saying, hey, listen, um, can I borrow your cell phone for a week? I'll give it back. They're like, what? No, of course not. <laughs> they, they have no trust with you. That's too big an ask. But if, if someone came up and said, listen, I just lost my cell phone. I would love to call my wife so she can help come pick me up. I'll give you her number so you could call her uh, just so that there's no funny business. Would you do that for me? And you'd say, yeah, of course I'd do that for you. That would be an appropriate amount. Uh, that would be an appropriate request given the amount of trust that, you know, uh, you may have, may have in that moment. So whatever situation you're going into, when you want to change how somebody feels or thinks or behaves, it's a really good idea to focus on safety first. So, for example, let's say your teenage daughter starts dating a guy that you think is one bad choice away from reform school or juvie. You're really not comfortable with this at all. But she's really excited because he's exciting. And she was in a, a social circle that was more reserved and conservative, uh, but now she's, you know, getting access to a little more exciting social circle, and she's kind of enjoying it. But, but if you just go into her and say, listen, sit down. I want to talk to you. That guy is a loser. You're not going to go out with that guy. You're never going to see that guy. End of story. Well, how well do you think that's going to go? She's going to push back hard, really, really hard. She may even tell, say, okay, and then she may go and lie and hang out with him anyway. But... If you sit down with her to try to establish some safety first, you may say, listen, I want to talk to you about this guy that you've been dating. It seems like he's really exciting. It seems like you're having a lot of fun. Um, and, you know, I'm really happy that you're you know, getting to explore these new experiences. And I don't, and I want to talk to you about a couple things that I have some questions about and just want you to know I'm not trying to take him away from you. Like, that's not my goal. She may, she may settle down. She may say, okay, I'm open to this conversation because she feels a little safer and she's not going to lose something. And then you might have uh, an open channel that you can continue to communicate with her around to help protect her, you know, if, you know, that uh, is necessary as time goes on. And so you may say, listen, you know, uh, I love that you're having these new experiences. I think it's great. And I also noticed that, you know, you haven't been spending as much time with your, your other group of friends or you haven't been playing the piano as much, and I know you love the piano. And I'm just, you know, uh, wondering, you know, what's, what's, you know, what's up with that? And, um, you know, and hoping that, you know, you might continue to enjoy those people and those hobbies as well. And then you can have a conversation about it. 
Now, I'm not saying it's going to go perfectly, but if we focus on safety first, we generally are going to produce a better outcome. So what are some ways that we can do that, whether you're a leader trying to get your team on board for a new initiative, you're pitching a campaign to uh, a company as an agency, what, what are some things, that, how, how can we apply that to more of a, uh, a, the business space? Well, we can use some labeling. So for example, let's say you want to start a new project with your team. Uh, you might, you know, start off by saying, listen, I know sometimes when I get a big idea, it can be a little bit scary because it means a lot of work is coming. So you can just say it. You can just, if you can label what they may be feeling or thinking, then they might go, okay, I appreciate that he understands us. Like he understands how we feel in these moments. But here's the thing. Here's what I want to promise you. I just want to explore an idea with you to get your feedback on it, see what you think about it, and what might be possible for us. And I'm really going to, um, I'm really going to work with you, so that you can take the lead on this, uh, and determine, you know, what our future may look like around it. You know, if that's if that, if you're cool with that, and they 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 may be much more open to hearing it, because generally, what the entrepreneur comes in and goes, all right, everybody, sit down. I had this brilliant idea in the shower this morning. I know we've been doing, you know, this project and this project and this project and this project, and everybody's deep in the weeds on it, but I have a better idea. Here's what I want to do. And the whole team is going, oh, my God. There goes my vacation. I'm going to have to stay late. Uh, and so you've just scared the heck out of them, and they don't feel safe. In, uh, in a sales meeting, you may say, listen, I imagine a lot of people are pitching you pretty hard, uh, you know, to get your business on this because it's a big contract. And uh, let me be really clear. I would love this contract. But my promise to you is I'm not going to pitch you our services if I don't think we can do our absolute best work with you. Uh, because we only work with people with whom we can do our best work so you can get the kind of results that you want and we can have a meaningful experience doing it. So we stack the deck in our favor. And they might go, okay, I'm going to feel a little safer right now than the, you know, the other crew that just came in and made this big pitch uh, that felt pushy and, and like they were going to get forced into something. Uh, or for example, let's say um, you're a large company and you are negotiating with a small company. Uh, if you're the large company, you may label the fact that you're a large company and say, listen, I know we're a big company. I know it looks like we've got a lot of lawyers and a lot of money, and a lot of influence, and we do. But I promise you, we're not going to try to take advantage of you. We're not going to try to force you in a situation that you're not comfortable with. Um, and we're, we're, one of our core values is that we're always, we always do our best to be fair and equitable. You know, and they may, you know, uh, still wonder if it's true, but then you have the opportunity to fulfill on that promise. But you start by creating some safety and labeling the fear that they have or the concern that they have right off the bat. I like that. And that definitely requires a bit of research up front and doing your, your preparation, which obviously you're big on, right? Yeah. So, you know, one thing that I've heard you talk about before is that expertise has become commoditized. 
and it's more about being a visionary than an expert. You know, we talked about, you know, today we talked about safety, trust, vulnerability. Does any of this, and maybe it doesn't, but does any of this tie into getting people to buy into this vision or being a visionary uh, for uh, wherever you're trying to create impact? Yeah, I think so. So in the, in the, when you introduced me, you mentioned that I was an expert uh, in, I think, public speaking. And, uh, and I actually don't think of myself as an expert. In fact, I really think that expertise has been commoditized because most experts deliver current best practices. They are able to uh, essentially hold up a mirror uh, to the way things are currently done or present the way things are currently done. Here's how things are currently done. Here are seven you know, tips for getting more views on YouTube. You know, an, an expert can do that for you. Um, but I, I really try to stay away from expert-based work because maybe 50 years ago, uh, expertise meant more because you only had access to maybe one or two experts in your whole town. But now, with the internet, you can have access to thousands of experts. You want to learn how to uh, row a boat? You can go on YouTube. You want to learn how to take apart an iPhone? Go on YouTube. You want to learn how to do a podcast? There are lots of people that will tell you how to do a podcast. Doesn't mean you'll do the podcast well, though. Doesn't mean you'll be able to put the phone back together. Doesn't mean uh, that you'll be any good at the rowing. The experts just say, here's how it's done. Here's the technique. What the visionary does that's very different than the expert is they often challenge the status quo and offer a new approach. And in the process, create the future. So the expert is presenting the present and the visionary is creating the future with the people that they serve. And, you know, I mentioned earlier that when Andrew and I were, you know, working on this book, we wanted to answer a question that had not been answered before. And we needed visionary thinking to do it because most of the books we saw in public speaking were really, really similar. And to, from our perspective, basic. You know, after spending two decades on the, on the circuit at a very high level myself, Andrew's uh, been doing it for 12 years, you know, we realized that the way that it actually works is not reflected in, the, in what most books will tell you to do. And so the way that the visionary approaches the work is by asking a question that Google can't answer. Ask a question Google can't answer and then go on a journey, an investigation, to find that answer and see if you can offer a new approach to solving the problem. Because generally, experts start with solutions. They just go right to the solution. Oh, here's how it's done. Uh, and the visionary will take a much more expansive view uh, that has, uh, that's very, that, 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 that considers the context, not just the information associated with how to do that thing. Uh, and 
as a result, we'll create a new approach. And I think that's what we did with the referable speaker, and that's what I've tried to do along the way with as much of my work as I can. Uh, it's not easy, necessarily. It can take longer. It's why, you know, I think these, you know, these write a book in a weekend uh, courses uh, are, um, uh, I don't know what you'd call it, insincere? I mean, you could write a, certainly a pamphlet in a weekend of some kind, but you're, you're probably not going to do visionary work in a weekend. And one of the things that I think we've lost as a society is the ability to do deep work. I'm a fan of Cal Newport's, and he wrote the book uh, Deep Work. I'm sure you're familiar with it, uh, among many other books. Uh, and we're so distracted by so much stimuli on a regular basis that it's almost impossible to find the time to do deep work. And I make it a habit to try not to be overstimulated by uh, distractions so that I have time to do deep work in service of my clients and in service of myself because I find it more meaningful personally. Um, because, you know, if you're going to have a career uh, in the thought leadership space or the intellectual property space that lasts a long time, uh, it's really interesting to continue to find new approaches for the people you serve um, and challenge the status quo. And for some of these people say, well, how do I start? How do I come up with that question that Google can't answer? Start with what pits, pisses you off, what frustrates you about your industry or your field. What's the thing that gets your goat? It makes your hair stand up. Like for me, in the speaking world, it was all the selling from the stage. Like I just, I just annoyed me so much. I thought it was not in service of the audience. Uh, I just thought it was insincere. Uh, and I, I, I was like, this really bothers me. I, I want to I create something that's dramatically different, where speakers learn how to create transformational experiences for the audience such that their lives are changed forever. Not running to the back of the room, jumping on a table, and fighting somebody, you know, to buy a CD. That was a, you know, a few years ago they had CDs. Uh, and so, you know, start with the thing that frustrates you, and you'll often find your way into a new visionary approach that really will challenge the status quo. Awesome, man. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your vulnerability, diving into some things that I, I didn't think we were going to get into, which is awesome. And for, you know, all your work equipping people uh, with the skills that they need to challenge the status quo. Appreciate you being here today. Great to see you. Thank you so much for having me. What's up, guys? Thanks for taking the time to listen to the show today. If you enjoyed the episode, we'd greatly appreciate a five-star rating on iTunes because it's how we spread the word about the show. Also, remember to grab your copy of Locked In, a digital guide on how to unlock world-class resilient performance by heading over to mindshiftlabs.com backslash performance. That's mindshiftlabs.com backslash performance. We'll see you next week. Never for titles before survival. The champion. A team rope.